Hey, everybody, and welcome to Celebrating the Brand Ambassador, where we get down and dirty and reveal the secrets of some of the most outstanding career brand ambassadors, innovators, and brand owners in the cocktail industry. I'm your host, Elaine Duff, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe. Now let's get right into it and meet the personalities behind the brands you love. Hey, everybody. So welcome to Celebrating the Brand Ambassador. This is episode number 11. And I'm really excited to have with me here today, Michael Descano and Ian Burrell. Hi, guys. Hey. What's up? What's up? What's up? So I usually ask everybody, but I, I've learned I want to get to the more important things. So I'm just going to give you titles, and then I'm going to ask you my first question. So if everybody can't read, Michael Toscano is the Woodford Reserve Brand Ambassador here in New York City. And Ian Burrell, as we all know, is the Global Rum Ambassador. So usually I ask everybody's title and their roles, but we're going to go straight into the questions today. Michael, I really want to start with you because you definitely have an interesting background and the fact that you started in corporate in a very different industry, then in the bar industry, and now you're kind of in back in corporate. So tell us a little bit about that journey and like how those experiences help you kind of do your job today. Yeah. So... First and foremost, thank you for having me. I think this is an awesome opportunity to to showcase kind of our stories, things maybe people don't know about us, which I, which I think is really cool too. And then Ian, you and I have passed each other multiple times at international conferences, yeah. and it's nice to officially meet you uh, here as well. So I appreciate that very much bringing us together. My pleasure. <laughs> yeah. So I graduated from Ball State. It's a school in Northeast Indiana, 2005, went right to work in corporate America, white shirt you know, suit and tie five days a week, 7.30 to 6 was the hours for uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, which is this really amazing company actually that helps you kind of build business from the ground up. That's kind of the model of learning how to operate. I got into another division with them doing outside sales, basically just cold calling businesses and having presentations and selling widgets to people essentially basically and, and kind of did that, did ad sales for a long time with uh, Angie's List. They're based out of Indianapolis. Robert Half International as a recruiter, back to Angie's List. And then when I was 29, I just was, I just didn't want to do it anymore. It was the, I was the person that like used all my vacation up January 15th. You know, your two weeks of vacation were already wiped out. And then I spent the rest of the year trying to find ways out of work. And so I really, <laughs> I, I, I was good at sales, but I didn't want to do it. It was just a miserable thing. And so, um, at the time, my brothers and I were talking about opening a bar one day, and that was the dream. And one brother's an occupational therapist. One brother's a graphic design engineer, works for Lids and Hat World, like doing logos and stuff for different high schools and colleges around the country. And so I was like, well, I'll be the one. You make fun of because you're like, dude, we're going to open a bar without knowing how to open a bar. Yeah. <laughs> totally that person. It's totally that person. <laughs> But that was what I was like, from my experience in corporate America was like, well, I need to start from the bottom up and I need to learn this business because I know nothing about it right. outside of working at like Olive Garden in college. Right. So like I quit like on the, I just stopped on a dime, quit America, corporate America, got a job as a bar back at a cocktail bar and then canned beer at a brewery. And nice. that was really what I did for like six months, just nonstop. And knew nothing about drinks, knew nothing about cocktails. I just happened to get on at a cocktail bar. And then just the way that the industry was going and the scene was moving in Indianapolis, I got to start serving at that spot. And then they asked if I wanted to bartend. And then I just fell in love with cocktails. 
And that was really kind of the end of it. And then I moved my way up to the GM of that bar restaurant in the three, four years I was there, met my wife, Brooke, and then was sitting at Tales of the Cocktail, I don't know, five, six years ago now, and just wrote a little note to Brooke. We were in like a, a session talking about opening bars and what it looks like. And, you know, there are people in there from New York and San Francisco and London. And I just looked at Brooke and wrote a little note on a piece of paper and just said, if we're ever going to do anything, we have to leave Indianapolis. Like we can't stay in that little market and nothing against it. You know, it's where our families are, but like, we just wanted more. And so within a year we were married and moved to New York. And then I happened to get connected to Naren Young when he was still with Dante and got on at Dante and all worked my way up back to Naren Young. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Six degrees, probably two degrees of separation, really. Yeah, exactly. And, and I was there for about two years, a little year and a half, and then did some consulting stuff for a while. And then the, the brand job with Woodford opened up and uh, applied and, and got it. And now I'm, you know, kind of taking two of my careers and putting them together into one and became the ambassador for Woodford. So it's been quite the journey over the last, you know, almost 20 years since college. How long have you been there now? I've been with Woodford for just over two years. Okay. And did your re- job require sales or before the pandemic? Or, or you got into it right as the pandemic? <laughs> you know, the, the job really is more of a marketing position. The sales aspect has really kind of kicked in truthfully during the pandemic, right? With on-premise being shut down and not having a lot of in, you know, in-person activations with trade, you know, we've had to pivot, right? The word, right? Pivot, the keyword, right? To everybody right I now. I think everybody's uh, going to retire pivot in like the next six months. Nobody's going to be allowed to say pivot. It'll be like a drink, it'll be like a game. Like, you know, if you say pivot, you get like X, like, right? No, I feel like pivot, pivot and the word blessed are two words that I can't stand. Now. I just can't, I can't handle them. But so like, you know, we, a lot of our distributors were out too. So there was a lot of, there was some more sales focus in the last few, four or five months. So it has felt oddly familiar in the last few months, but it's, yeah, it's been good. Very cool. So Ian, you've been a brand ambassador since 1995. Yeah. Not age or anything. <laughs> <laughs> off and on off and on brand ambassador since then <laughs> yeah exactly before brand ambassador was even like a thing right the only people other people i know is brand ambassador at the time with angus winchester and philip <laughs> yeah yeah for, for fortunately i preceded them all right but i love your story so, and yes it was the first time i had heard it so i think everybody would probably love to know how you became this global ambassador of rum which is such the the best title ever. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was uh, that was something I self-appointed. I actually, uh, I looked around and said, well, there isn't anyone representing the rum category. And I said, well, you know what? Why not me? So yeah, so I, I called myself, first of all, I called myself uh, the UK rum ambassador because although I was made officially a brand ambassador in 95 for uh, J. Ray and FU and Appleton in here in the UK, it was while I was uh, working or being deployed into places like Australia and New Zealand, in like 2002, 2003, I, I realized I knew loads about Appleton rum and Jamaica rum, but knew nothing about other rums out there. So, so that's when I decided, you know, I need to broaden my horizons, travel around the Caribbean, learn about all the different rums out there, leave Appleton at that particular time. And in the course of between, say, 2003, 2004, came up with a concept of a, of a global ambassador for the rum category. And that's how it evolved. Uh, and actually officially became that in my own mind in 2007. <laughs> so, yeah. So no one actually officially appointed me as the global ambassador for rum, but I've, 
I've warned to all the rum companies I've worked with where they 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 actually call me that. <laughs> I think even Bacardi actually gave me a silver uh, shaker saying global ambassador for rum for what you've done for rum. I'm like, wow, amazing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I try try to give try to give the industry something something uh, they didn't know he needed. <laughs> I I always think it's brilliant because it's like, and I you said it once, and I watched the presentation. And you're like, I don't understand why nobody else has done this before. <laughs> like, why didn't you be like? It's I'm true. Like, yeah. You know, Michael, you could be yeah. like, you know, the yeah, Michael. Well, you should be the global, the global bourbon ambassador. Why is there no global bourbon ambassador? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Represent the category and just travel around the world and teach people about bourbon. Let them know no, it's different I mean, from Tennessee whiskey. <laughs> Sounds great to me. I feel like we're on to something. I mean, yeah. we might, I might change it when I got the call to send an email to my bosses. Like, there's an update to my signature in my email, please. There you yeah. go. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> you exactly. <laughs> so exactly. you have to give a little bit more love to some of the other bourbons out there as well. <laughs> I actually once thought of doing it for vodka, but I was like, no, it's not that cool. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, doing it. there was already a yeah. lot of tequila ambassadors and it was already like, and I was like, nobody's doing vodka about, I'm like, do I want to spend all my time like drinking vodka? I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, so talking about how, how the package looks, how the bottle looks, and yeah, um, and seventy-seven thousand uh, distillate distillates. Well, it's been distilled seventy-seven thousand times, and yeah, to, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I knew yeah. everything there was after working on Ciroc. I mean, who wouldn't? You know? <laughs> but um, at least you had okay. one that was great based at least it was interesting and that's it was at least interesting and i got to work with diddy and that was that was very cool not very cool in the cocktail world but it was cool in the consumer world and everybody yeah. else yeah but, ian you said something to me yesterday i thought was really cool and you said you know you got to build your own table can you expand yes. on that yeah, I mean, it's a case of as you as you know, especially last year, highlighted a lot of a lot of things was a lot of injustices that people saw firsthand because they had more time to actually see that. And I never really looked at that in the industry as such because I was still even back in two thousand and three, which was what we'd see is the height of the mixology on roll time in the UK. I wasn't really I wasn't really part of that, and one of the reasons. I wasn't really part of that because no one really invited me to some of these events. I had to basically create my own events or create my own my own message to get invited to some of these or to do talks and presentations. And when I look at it, when I look back at what I did, instead of waiting to be invited to the proverbial table, I built my own table. I said, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to create my own thing. I'm going to do my own thing. I created my own rum festival in 2007 when I realized no one else had done an international rum festival before. Now there are rum festivals all over the world, but they all spawned from my little event that I started in London in 2007. And now I've been now I get invited to all these rum festivals, <laughs> either as a host or as a consultant um, or as a guest speaker. But again, it's it's it is a case of sometimes you don't have to wait for someone to invite you to their table. Build your own table, yep. and then yeah. they'll come to you and maybe eat off there. And that's 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 the mindset I that was ingrained in me, and that's the mindset I use now from now and going on to the future. And that's what I pass down to to family, friends, and anyone that wants to listen to me. It's about doing your own thing and not wait for someone else to give you a handout. Now, I wish I think uh, you Hi, Daniel. Thank you for tuning in. I always, tell, I always tell people, I'm like, yeah, I was like, nobody's ever asked me to do a seminar, ever, ever. <laughs> I've never been asked to be on a panel in my no. entire 20 years of being in my career, not once. Are you I, serious? Serious. So I started, I was like, fuck it. I'm going to do my own. 
So every wow. seminar, <laughs> I, you know what? That, I find that surprising because I've known you for quite a few years and I look at you as like one of the, the beacons of success. I'm like, yeah, Lane Duke. Oh, sorry. Um, I know. Lane Duff. <laughs> no, I, <know>. <laughs> I, was I was Duke when I first started. People still love doing that. They're like, Duke Duff. Because everybody's like, oh, you must be on live. I was like, not once, not one panel. Nobody's ever, ever emailed me and be like, Lane, would you be part of our panel? I was like, every wow. seminar I've created my, my own. Wow, <laughs> I created brilliant. My own. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Well, that needs to change. That will change now. Now we all know. <laughs> but right. Go ahead, Michael. I think that's a, a huge testament, though, to, to what makes people successful in this industry, right? I know we're going to talk about this maybe a little bit down the line, but so much of it is not waiting on other people to give you the opportunities, but going out right. and making them for yourself. I mean, I think yeah. that there's a there's an underlying message, I think, already between the three of us of like, we recognize that if we wanted to accomplish the goals we had, that we had to make those things come right. to life. And and yeah. I think that that's such a such a powerful message for anybody that's watching or, or thinking about like what's next and where we go from mm -hmm. here. It's, you know, put it out there and then, and then, you know, make the conscious decision to, to put yourself in a place to accomplish those goals, I think is, is huge. Yeah. No, I think uh, it is huge because if you, did, if you sit around and wait and then go, woe is me, nobody's ever, you know, why isn't anybody asked me why I'm, I'm, why am I not, I, I, I'm really, I was one of those when I was younger, I was like, wow, I'm just not cool enough, I guess. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I guess I'm just not that good. And, and then I was like, fuck it, I, I'm gonna, you know, make it happen. But I do believe sometimes you do have to make and build your own and, and create the opportunity. I can't wait for other people. Um, if I waited for Diageo, like most of the things in my career would never have happened because they, they, they were not a believer of doing any of those things back yeah. then. Uh, now they yeah. are, but back then they were not. So cool. I want to also talk about, and I don't know if Ian, if you actually ever experienced this because you don't work directly for a brand, but Michael, you've had experience in this. You're not alone. Like brand ambassadors, when they first get hired by a corporation, there's a ton of politics and it's one of the hardest things to navigate in any company. It's like, there's so many layers. There's brand managers and their bosses and there's the, you know, the distilleries, I'm sorry, the distributors and the market managers and the sales managers and the local people and the state people. And you have to navigate all of those things. So I know this was like, when you first came on, you said there was so many layers and I, I love the story you told me. So I don't know how much you want to, story you want to tell me <laughs> the lessons you learned because it it's kind of a funny story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the, the silver lining, one of the silver linings to the pandemic is that it, we've gotten really good at our communication from in, with inside Brown Foreman. I have a very clear understanding of the hierarchy and the people that I need to report to directly and who I need to connect to and who I need to kind of like wait for direction from, who I can and can't email, like that kind of thing definitely has become very clear over the last, you know, 12 months now at this point. But yeah, when I, when I first started, there's a couple of things that led to this. One, there hadn't been an ambassador in New York for Woodford for a couple of months. So everybody was really hungry to have someone in place that they could use to help you know, accomplish their goals, realistically, the sales team. Uh, my position is, so I work for an agency, which, so essentially Brown Foreman hires the agency to hire me. And there's a whole lot of tax reasons and other things for that um, that aren't important, but common yeah. practice, not, not, a, not a weird thing. So I work for an agency and my position is funded through the brand out of Kentucky. But then you have the New York team of Brown Foreman that have their own budgets and their own goals and their own ideas of what they need to accomplish. And as a marketing position, which is what my position is, you can butt up against sales. Oftentimes, they don't communicate correctly or the expectations are different. 
And then also coming from a bar bar background, especially working at a bar like Dante, the local team was, we had this amazing new craft cocktail bartender who worked at Dante that we now have as like this little widget that we can use to help secure the sales and the victories and the things I need to accomplish in my world, which is great. And then I'm also trying to get adjusted to a new position, all the new rules and regulations, all the trainings, all of the calls, all of, you know, getting acclimated again to the corporate structure. And we had an event where Chris Morris was in town to do barrel selections Tell for off-premise accounts. By the way, for those of Chris you Morris know. is the master distiller for Woodford Reserve. So the tippy top, right? The, the man. And they wanted me to, to shadow him in these presentations to learn how to execute these barrel dinners where people we get off-premise and on-premise accounts together to taste their samples and then purchase barrels. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a huge, obviously a huge uh, win for the brand. And they wanted me to learn how to do it so that we could do them without having to fly Chris in all the time. And the local team decided that they were going to use me as the bartender for the event. <laughs> and so, all, you know, there's just multiple emails back and forth, multiple, you know, attachments and Excel sheets, and it just got lost in the communication. And I really still have to own it because now I would not have missed that. But then I just didn't think to look down the Excel spreadsheet to where my name was and what I was doing because I thought I was just doing what the brand team told me to do, which was go shadow Chris. And I show up for the event and they're like, here's your station. And it was this modular bar unit. And I was like, what do you, I'm in like a suit, you know, and I'm like ready to go and hang out with Chris. And I ended up making old fashions in Manhattans for, you know, 60 <laughs> suppliers and their, their dates. And, know you know, I'm getting yelled that. at about not having margaritas and, you know, the person that wants the skinny old fashioned and the spicy Manhattan. And like, I'm on this limited modular bar with like basic bar tools and, you know, store-bought simple syrup. Shit, and shit. yeah. And I, and I had, and I essentially worked a four hour bar shift and spent 10 minutes with Chris the whole time. And I'm, I'm an emotional Italian person, right? So like, I'm not yelling at anybody, but you can definitely tell that I'm not in a good space. And uh, the state manager comes up to me at, towards the end and he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Like I'm hovering over the trash can, having like cold food, like stock meal. And I'm, you know, just like my suit's destroyed and I'm just pissed. Anyway, and that, so that led to like, you know, about six to 12 months of animosity between <laughs> me and the state manager of New York who can't get me fired, but could definitely get me in a lot of trouble and make my make my world a little bit more difficult than, than it needs to be. But I mean, ultimately, that we have a great relationship now and everything everything is fine. But it was definitely a great example of really early on of like, if you're not communicating effectively within the hierarchy, if you're not efficiently communicating, you know, expectations and direction and make sure everybody is on the same page, it can lead to quite a bit of confusion and it, it definitely did uh in that in that that instance i think everybody's been there i think everybody's done that and one lesson i did give to michael yesterday we were talking about this i said the one thing i learned in my career was find somebody senior that can protect you like somebody who's really high up and become really tight with them because my ass has been on the line a few times in my career. <laughs> there are some people I've pissed off and wanted to fire me. And I've managed to like go to that person and be like, hey, do you know that what's this <laughs> or there? They really don't like me and they're trying to fire my ass. And they'd be like, what? And like suddenly like emails would be sent and that would just go away. Or like when company cuts come, like, you know, that person like kind of makes sure that you're okay. Like they're like, whether well, even like, you know, 
And I have done it in all my career. Like I worked in fashion as well. And, and I've just found it's really useful. <laughs> and it's also good for later on because all those senior executives that I learned to become friends with and network with and made sure I got them reservations for their wives and whatever I did, I did all the ass kissing. I really did. I was like, I'm going to make sure the senior people know who I am. They're my clients now. Like they really are. They've all left Diageo and they're the people calling me up and being like, Hey Elaine, like, what are you doing now? We'd love to hire you. So they moved to other companies. So it it works in many ways. Do you have to deal with any politics with companies like at all? All all the time, all the time. And and because I'm in that um, unenviable position where I can work with pretty much any company that I what that wants to hire me such sometimes you're working with rivals you may be working one day with one company that is a rival of another company in fact it might be a situation where one company is actually suing another company and you're working um, you're working basically from one day to another day such as always that, that internal politics there but I always say to all these companies I work with it I'm working with you but not for you and I'm also here to promote the category of rum and I'm using your product as an example of that so if you if you brought me in to basically say your rum is the best rum in the world and you want me to bad mouth another brand, you've got a wrong guy. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Two reasons why you got the wrong guy. So there is all that politics because sometimes you're not always dealing with the person at the top that really understands it. Sometimes you're just dealing with the marketing department whose job mm-hmm. is just they'll give you stories that you look at and you say, well, that's that's bullshit. <laughs> that's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> Because I've been there and I've worked with the the person you're talking about and they're like, that's bullshit. So you have that politics when you're fighting against the marketing team who's, oh, been, yeah. given, who's been given a story. And that just contradicts everything that you know to be true. And then you have to fight against them because they've been paid their big bucks as a marketing team and you're just the, the hired gun. Mm-hmm. So you then have to go to the powers that be above the marketing team and basically say, well, no, no disrespect, but this is what your marketing team wants to put out and... If you want me to actually be part of this process, then I I can only talk about brands I, I drink, I enjoy, and the story is authentic. And then they have to go back to the marketing team and go back, oh, get rid of that rubbish. That's bullshit. Ian just told us blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, yeah, there's so much. There is, there's always going to be politics in, in the spirits game. It's one of the richest and biggest industries in the world. It's legal drugs. Um, <laughs> drugs, I should say. So, yeah, um, no, you're right. That's a great example. Have you ever been asked to work with, like, I know this happened to me, you know, when Diageo, when I first became the mixologist, they didn't know what a mixologist was because it was 2005 and I was starting to be a mixologist, but it's creating cocktails and they'd be like, but you can't use those products that we don't own them. I'm like, you don't own any modifiers. You don't own cilantro. (laughs) I'm like, you're even the average gold clogger. I'm like, you know, they wanted, to, they, wanted to make a, they wanted to make a Manhattan with just whiskey. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't so own I had a conversation with the marketing team. I'm like, yeah, I, I get it, but this is how cocktails work. Like, there are other ingredients. We just don't yeah. own them yet. I was yeah. like, you can't make a martini. We don't have vermouth. I was like, I'm going to have to work with other companies. I'm like, you know, it's just the way it works. I'm like, that's what happens when there's not enough bartenders in those senior positions. Yeah. Um, yes, that's right. changed now, but back then there weren't, there wasn't enough. So you were dealing with, I mean, back in the days before the ambassador, it was marketing people coming in or salespeople just coming into your bars, trying to sell your product. They had no idea, no clue how a bar worked whether their product was actually good for your bar. Uh, yeah. So that's yeah. what we had to deal with. 
in the 90s, the early, sorry, mid 90s, early 2000s, before companies started wising up and saying, you know what, maybe we should get, which is what Apple didn't did when they hired me. They said, maybe we should get a bartender to talk to other bartenders about our products. That make perfect sense. That's how I became the first brand ambassador in the UK, rum ambassador in the UK, because of that. It was like, oh, here's a week. Let a bartender talk, because he knows about that language, that cocktail thing, mixology stuff, that new cocktail called the mojito that everyone's making. He knows what he knows what, what that all is and how, how our rum can really represent in that, in, in that particular drink. So, yeah, but um, that, that's the reason why we, we came across those hurdles or we, we came across those hurdles. It's just not, it wasn't enough. And I still think there should be more. There's enough people that have been behind the sticks and earn their stripes that are in those senior positions within the yeah. industry. Yeah. And I'm saying, I was just saying, as soon as you get more and more people in those places, you see the massive difference. Oh yeah. Michael, do you ever find yourself uh, training the people, the internal team? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge part of what, a huge reason why I was hired, I think. I mean, ultimately it was, I mean, I, I do think I was unique that I came out of the bar industry with almost a decade of corporate experience behind that and sales and presentation experience already kind of under my belt. But ultimately being able to like in the interview process, we had to demo cocktails to the people that were hiring us, like going through like how we would build a julep and talk about it as if it was derby time. Like mm. that's a huge part of Woodford. So being able to demo that and like present this beautiful, you know, speaking of Naren Young once again, but like, I mean, what I've learned from that man above all else is make the drink look as beautiful as possible at all times. And so creating this amazing julep that looked like nothing anyone had ever seen before was a huge help. So I, I definitely get a ton of that, right? I mean, I've got multiple documents I've created for the Brown Foreman across the portfolio for Eridura, for Old Forester, for El Himidor, for Ford, not necessarily Ford. They've got Tim Cooper, who is, you know, God's gift to ambassadors. I love that man's <laughs> death. But yeah, I mean, definitely reaching, reaching out. And then there's also been times too where like they've created a program and in our ambassador team, we're all former bartenders. So, you know, we'll create a program or ideations around a new expression and we'll be the first ones to speak up and say, that doesn't work, right? You can't, you can't use this spirit in this cocktail because it's too soft or because, you know, the flavor profiles don't match up or this would work better. Or, yeah. you know, when it comes to expressions that are newer, like how do we use them? Like, how can we promote them in a way that makes sense? I think to, to, to Ian's point, like, if the story's not right, if the, if the product's not good, if, if it doesn't make sense, you're not, we're not going to sell it. Right. One, because people, I think people more today than ever are so keen to the bullshit hmm. and to the stories and the fluff and all the, you know, like, but I also think at, you know, part of my career and all the other sales jobs that I left too, was because I just didn't believe in what I was doing anymore. Yep. I didn't believe in the product. I didn't believe in the, that, that it could actually be a benefit to people. And I think, you know, Woodford and me makes so much sense because I grew up in the Midwest. Bourbon was a huge part of my life. Like Woodford's been at funerals and weddings and, and graduations and campfires. And like, you know, so I think I'll, not to kind of go off on that a little bit, but like that is, that's super important for anybody that wants to get into this industry is don't just go represent the first brand that gives you an opportunity to represent them, you know, unless it's a part-time thing or, you know, you want to just try it out. But like, if you're going to get into this, identify right identify something like rum that's important to you and yeah. and and then that's what really gives you the you know the the power uh, the drive to create your table to to go that way you know i'm not going to get jazzed up about 
flavored vodka. It's just not my thing. You know what I mean? If I sit with every brand ambassador, I think on the show has given, it's like, you really do need to love the brand because you are selling it. I mean, or else you're a soulless person and you just don't care. And you're just out there and you're like, you know, because I do, I have met people who hire semi kind of brand ambassadors slash sales and they are, they don't come from our industry. So for them, it's just a product and they are just selling it um, because that's what they're hired for. But I, yeah, I definitely like, I I wear my heart in my sleeve. There's just no way like you can, they've tried. Diageo gave me a few, I was like, you don't want me talking about that because you don't want to hear it come out of my mouth. Elaine, um, just to the point, you just said that, and uh, in fact, it touches on um, what was said before in, in regards to feeling and, and having that emotional connection to the brands. Those salespeople that have no feeling to the brand, they possibly could sell that product into the bar, but that may, be last, that might, may last a year. That may last like even half a year. It may last at the end of the contract because as a brand ambassador, if you're not emotionally connected to connected to that brand somehow, then how is the person you're speaking to supposed to feel that way, emotionally connected to that? And if you can make people feel connected to your brand just by your presence, the way you are, once that contract's finished, or even when they've left, they'll still be thinking about your brand. Maybe in the next bar they work in, or the next uh, bar they open up, or restaurant open up, they'll they'll have you in mind because of that connection you have to the brand. So it's yeah. it's not exactly what you say; it's how you make people feel. Yeah. And that's so key for those brand ambassadors. And then that's one of the reasons why the, those corporate, the, the salespeople, as you said, that can, they're salespeople, they represent a brand, they're soulless. They'll put a brand into an establishment. You go back a year later or two years later, that brand's gone, regardless yeah. of the brand. But someone who comes in with a small little tiny brand, little craft, a craft brand as such, but is passionate about that and loves it. It's part of DNA. And they'll, send to, they'll say, you know what? I might keep this on. Uh, they haven't got any money. I'll still keep on the back bar. And when I move into a new place, I'll carry that as well because you mm-hmm. remember how the brand ambassador made you feel. That's no, it. So that's, that's the difference between the reason why there's difference. And and Nick Alanis from Fournette, who was on last week, he mm. said that's the biggest difference between us and sales reps. He's like, we we have that passion and that connection, and people get emotionally attached to our brands because we're emotionally attached to the brand. So they want to bring it on. Because they 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 like us, but they, they they see that how much we believe in it, and they're like, well, they, this must be amazing, like you know, because this person who I respect thinks it's amazing, and I think that's a huge difference. I was gonna say, do we, uh, Donald? We got a, we got a question. Hi, Donald. Thank you for turning on. What advice would you give a small craft distillery interesting in developing a brand ambassador role with limited resources? If you don't mind, I'm gonna take this one first. Donald, I'm going to be honest with you. Don't hire a brand ambassador. Hire a sales rep because <laughs> you don't want a brand ambassador. You want a sales rep. You do. I, as somebody who is, uh, you want somebody who is half and half. They are passionate about their brand. They know the category. They can sell it like nobody's business. They have the same enthusiasm for the brand that a brand ambassador would, what we were just discussing, but they are a salesperson, like that's their job. Like they go out and they sell because trying to afford to do both as a small brand, you're not gonna be able to do it. And what you need is sales. Yeah. That's yeah. my advice. Would you just, anybody disagree with that? No, definitely not. Not when it comes to a small little craft distillery. It's like, uh, unless you got a nice big bankroll, bankrolling your distillery, you need sales. <laughs> you need sales. Yeah. Yeah. Donald, you are your brand ambassador. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, at the end of the day, you know, what, what I can tell you is there's a, there's a small distillery in Bloomington, Indiana, where IU is called Cardinal Spirits. And they launched in Indiana, I don't know, seven, eight years ago when I was still there. And they were 
they would just go to Indianapolis and hit the bars and just set meetings and just get us to taste it and do the, what, what Ian, just bring a bottle in, have it on the back bar. You know what I mean? We'll come in, we'll support it. And what happens is those bartenders taste those spirits and then fall in love with it or yeah. they start using it. And then they start telling their, their guests, Hey, I have this new thing, you know, and it's small and it's craft and it supports. And I mean, at least in the Midwest where I'm from, like, that's a huge thing. Like, this is this really cool expression. It's really unique to them. Let's bring it out. Let's give it a shot. And then you get consumers into it and then you can start to grow. And I, you know, Cardinal Spirits is in New York now. Like they were mm. in BCB last year. You know what I mean? Brooke, my wife, when she took over the bar program at Pouring Ribbons, brought in Cardinal Spirits and it's on the back bar at Ribbons here in New York now. And so like, and it's not, a, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to necessarily be cases and cases and cases and a ton of that, but you know, it's starting locally and letting the people taste it and fall in love with it. And then those people all become free ambassadors. Mm. They get to talk about your spirit and talk about, you know, how much they enjoy it. And then I think the growth is organic. I think the worst thing you could do is hire somebody like that and get them out there and then not be able to keep up. And then everything's on allocation or you run out and then you burn those bridges down. And then it's, you're far, it's far harder to come back from that than it is to just live in your box and and let it grow organically and then be in a position to strategically, okay, I'm going to go to, you know, whether it's like Indianapolis to Chicago or Cincinnati or Louisville, and then, you know, out from there. So, you know, I, th- I think. I, I agree. Um, you, got, you got to build your local, but also the other, the other thing I learned, I, I was helping run a couple of part-time brand ambassador programs and it's hard because they're, they're bartenders. They are, well, now it's probably maybe a little bit easier because people are looking for more work, but you know, at the end of the day, they're going to make more money at their bar. It's really hard for them to manage their time being part-time. And most people want like a six month contract. And then, so they go out and make placements you don't have a budget to really do a lot of support. And then six months from now, their contract's over. And then the brand, if they weren't that emotionally attached to it, is gone, right? Yeah. So if ideally, if you could have a sales rep and then a person who goes in afterwards to make sure and supports the brands, fantastic. If they can work like simultaneous and do it small, state, as you said, Michael, I lost you there. That's, can you hear me now? Yeah. I haven't lost anybody. Yeah, but I heard myself from five minutes ago talking in my earphones. I don't. That was strange. <laughs> Here we are. So great, you are here twice. Yeah. <laughs> so Donald, I hope that I hope that helps. And you you know my number. You can call me anytime, and we can have longer conversations about this. So one thing we both talked about is, and you mentioned it before, Ian, about. You couldn't just, you when you first started, you just knew about Ray and Nephew and you just talked about Appleton and you didn't, you weren't an expert in the category. And that was something that became really important to you. And I also know from Michael, like one of the things that Brown Foreman did really well is that you trained for like months just on the product itself, just so you become an expert. And, and you've also taken some courses. So I wanted to talk about like, what you did to become an expert, Ian, I'll start with you in the category itself and why you think it's important and what you recommend other people to do to become experts in their category. Well, first of all, I don't see myself as an expert. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just a rum lover. Okay. <laughs> I like that. I like that. My, my granddad used to say, actually, it wasn't my granddad. My granddad used to say a lot of crazy things about rum. But I, I remember I was asked to join a, a network of professional speakers in the spirits industry. It was set up by a guy named uh, Mark Ridwell, who passed away a couple of years ago. And uh, it was called Taste and Flavor here in the UK. And they had 
Tom Estes was the tequila guy. Dave Broom was the whiskey guy. They had a guy named Ian Widneski was the vodka guy. And it was a guy named Tony Hart, who was a rum guy, who I used to learn so much about history and stories about rum. And when, 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 when he became ill, they actually came to me and said, listen, Ian, we'd love you to stand in uh, for Tony Hart to actually be the rum guy. And I was so honored because all these guys like Tom Essers, Dave Broom and Ian Wisniewski and, and we're just like, I'm like, wow, these are the, the spirit legends. And, and all this was all about fun. As such. So, so they then asked me to be the rum guy. And I remember sitting down with uh, Nicholas Faith, who was the cognac expert, another person who's passed away, unfortunately. And he was sitting down and he was talking about cognac. And I was like, you know what? I've learned more about cognac in 10 minutes sitting down with you than I had in the, perf- in the previous 10, 15 years of being a bartender. And you just know everything about cognac. And he goes, no, Ian, listen, I don't know everything about cognac. I just know a little bit more than most. And that's how I name myself with rum. I don't know everything about rum. I'm not a rum expert. I just know a little tiny bit more than most people when it comes to the rum category. And when I saw that, I was like, wow, that is, that's how I want to be. I want to keep learning, keep uh, expanding my horizons, learn about new rums, learn about new rum te- techniques, history of the history of rum, where rum was in the past, where rum is today, where rum is going in the future. And to do that, because it's constantly evolving as an industry, I have to constantly be traveling and learning and reading and tasting and sampling and listening as well. So it's, it's constantly evolving for me as, as a rum lover, as, a, as, as how I call myself an ambassador for the category of rum. So I, I, don't, I, I truly don't see myself as an expert. I just see myself as someone who loves the rum category that just knows a little tiny bit more than most people care to put into the rum industry or care to learn about rum and and that came out we've been talking about Naren as that common denominator that that must have come out when I was whisked out to New Zealand back in 2003 as this young rum ambassador from the UK just to represent and launch Appleton Rum because that's where I first met Naren and I didn't know I'd know I didn't know I'd met him and Jamie Elias <laughs> at Matterhorn and and places like that in New Zealand I didn't realize I'd met them until 10, 12 years later, when we're wow. sitting down having drinks and having conversations, and they realized, yeah, you're the black dude that came over and talked about rum. It was like that light bulb moment. But that just meant that for me, it's all about farming, you give out, it comes back. So we were destined to be around each other, just like some of the other people I've met along this journey, as such. But yeah, it's a case of. I, it's about constantly evolving. It's constantly understanding that you don't know everything. You may be able to bring certain stories or uh, talk about a particular product, but there is always room for improvement. There's always room to learn. I love hanging out with the master blenders, the distillers. Mm-hmm. Um, someone's put down as a message, enjoy Woodford, Wild Turkey and Appleton. I remember going down to uh, to Wild Turkey, my first trip down there, and someone else brought me down there. And I'm with the Russells learning about Wild Turkey. But then I had to then talk about... So tell me about your, uh, your relationship with Appleton Rum, the Campari connection. And Eddie was like, well, you know what? Appleton Rum's not bad. I'm like, see, there you go. I mean, I'm in Kentucky. I'm in <laughs> Turkey. And I'm talking about Jamaican rum. learning <laughs> 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 at the same time about bourbon <laughs> and about wild turkey. But with Eddie and Jimmy. Uh, so, so for me, it's, it's, it's always constantly evolving. It's always constantly learning and embracing that. And then being yourself when you tell when you talk about this, whatever you're representing, be yourself. Talk about your experience, your love. You grew up in the Midwest. 
why bourbon is like that to you because i've i've never been from I'm, i didn't grow up in the midwest but i love hearing people from the midwest talk about bourbon like it's their heart and soul yeah no i agree with i like that daniel uh jones talks yeah. about, that. He doesn't talk about being a rum expert he talks about like his his experience with rum and his passion for rum because uh, he's the angostura mm-hmm. brand ambassador global brand ambassador michael i don't know if you've ever met him yes. He's lovely. And uh, he says, I just talk about my passion for rum and, and my like my personal experience with it. So, uh, Simon, that's another rum. If you want to check it out, Rangastar rum. It's fantastic, <laughs> fantastic rum. And, and while we're here, I'm going to I'm going to plug the Kapali rum, which is a rum brand I work for. It's a lovely rum out of uh, Belize. Uh, if you like rum. Yeah, exactly. And then we have, we have Ian's own rum, which we're going to talk about. So stay around for that. He can tell you why it's, it's so special. But for yourself, Michael, I mean, what's your like, how did you learn about whiskey and well, I mean, whiskey in general, you know, when any bar in Indianapolis has a back bar full of bourbon, right? So when you get behind a bar, you, for us anyway, it was all about tasting because especially in Indianapolis, the, the scene was so new. Everybody was just, everything was so new to everybody. So it was just tasting and sampling and learning. I would encourage anybody that has an opportunity to take the trips that a lot of brands, once we get back to that offer, you know, I, I've done, I did Camp Run Amok, I've done behind the barrel with wild turkey twice yeah. grain of glass with brown foreman as a bartender as well as a brand ambassador um you know the, those tales of the cocktail multiple times bcb i got fortunate enough to go to uh pdx in, in portland is probably my favorite one because it's just so educationally focused yeah. it's still a good time but i just feel like i always got more from that trip you know the the more you can do the brand focused ones i think is it's really more beneficial if i'm being completely candid nothing against runabuck or tails or bcb but a lot of that is really intense and can kind of get washed out and i know that i have a lot of hazy memories of those trips but not a lot of very clear memories of those trips but to speak i mean wild turkey was the first thing i ever did as a bartender that was special the way i did behind the barrel the first year they launched it and spent a weekend with eddie and jimmy and yeah. not being afraid to talk to them, not being afraid to sit down. They want to talk about the product. They want to, you know, Chris wants to tell you stories about Woodford Reserve. Like there's no reason to be afraid to walk up and ask a question or, you know, pick their brain a little bit. I think Ian's point's very spot on, right? It's not about being an expert necessarily. It is about knowing a little bit more than somebody else that you can just share with them. And then always being willing to learn that little bit more. You don't know from the next person. You know, every time I go to Woodford, I've been four or five times. When I was an ambassador. I leave with something new that Chris tells me or that I learned about our distillation process or our fermentation or our barrels or, you know, I think that's super important. As far as from a brand perspective, there was a lot of training early on. I didn't really, I wasn't allowed to like go out into the market officially as the ambassador for two months, three months, really. I mean, I was visiting accounts, but I wasn't setting meetings and doing yeah. tastings and trainings. There was a lot of my own stuff, you know, I had to record myself on a camera doing a fake presentation and having it critiqued and redoing it and making sure that it was a consistent message because there, there's only six of us around the country and, the, you know, there's a global team, but we, you know, we don't interact necessarily outside of our of the United States, but they want a consistent message just so they can want a consistent background <laughs> on the virtual stuff. You know what I mean? They want everybody saying the same things because our story is so important to us because our product is so important and we want to make sure that everyone's getting that same experience. So, uh, there was a lot of that. I just completed my certification in spirit specialist through United Wine Educators Society. Uh, nice. So CSS certifi- certification that the brand paid for. 
for me to do that, which is fantastic. So while I don't necessarily speak about brandy or tequila or cognac very often, you know, I'm at least in a position where I can have those conversations mm-hmm. and talk about the different distillation methods. And, you know, inevitably you will always have somebody wanting to know the pH balance of wort, right? Or just, which I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm just not going to learn that. Um, well, I think also, that's, but I also think that's important to be honest sometimes. Because it's yeah. be able to be like, you know what? I, I, you know, that's a little above my pay grade. I, I, I don't know, but I can find out. Like, yeah, I can I, ask somebody. It's like, you know what? You got me there, but I will find out for you and I'll get back to you. Yeah. yeah. I think it's weird. Whenever I do like trade presentations, I'm like, oh, some dick's going to totally call me out on something. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, and I'm sorry for the, but I'm like, and I, and I always just get really nervous or like really prepare, but as you shoot it anyway. And I was going to say for myself, like once I took the WSET, like when I took level three, which is their new spirits intense, I learned and understood distillation and ferment in such a different level, like how aging works, how fermentation, in, in a chemical, in a, in a scientific way, which now gives me such a great base knowledge that I can really, I mean, I've been learning about distillation. I took bar five. I, I've done all those courses because as a reserve brand portfolio master, I had to know about tequila, gin, vodka, and it is important to be able to know the categories. So if somebody says, what's the difference between Herodora and Don Julio? I can at least be like, I don't know the specifics, but I do know it's like one's from the lowlands and one's from the highlands. And this is the difference. And I can talk about the category as a whole. Um, and for Simon, I'll give you like, I was going to, I was going to throw out one more brand. I know one of my favorite whiskeys besides Woodford is Dickel. Love Dickel bottle. It's one of my yeah. favorite whiskeys. <laughs> out, good, good, good whiskey making down there as well. She's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's a great, great distiller. All right. So I think that's all right. So of course, this book, we talked about that. Okay. So Michael, on a more serious note, I know uh, 18 months ago, you made the decision to stop drinking. How has that change like affected your job as a brand ambassador and what opportunities has it now opened up for you? Well, I'm much better at my job. If I'm <laughs> very honest, uh, I'm much more on top of the admin. I'm much more on top. You know, the thing that we talked about earlier wouldn't have happened <laughs> as a sober, as a sober ambassador. No, I mean, you know, all seriousness, all, all joking aside, you know, it's. It, I, I do think it's super important that whenever I talk about this, to point out that the, the Brown Foreman as a company were the first ones to rally around me when I made that decision. You know, Elizabeth McCall is our assistant master distiller. She's going to take over for Chris. One day when he steps down and she reached out like directly to me, not through an email, like sent me a message and was offered nothing but support. And they have been fantastic through this whole thing. I I just made the decision and, you know, a little anecdote. So tales two years ago, two things happened. One, I was out one night and I was partying with somebody that I knew from New York and just kind of owned it in the moment and was like, hey, I know I should know who you are. And I do know that I know you, but I don't know your name and that's my fault. And I'm just like, I'm just really sorry. And this person got off- was offended by it because we had spent multiple nights together in New York and in Tails partying. And like, I don't know this person's name. That is not acceptable on any level. But so I was like, okay, as an ambassador for Woodford, like that is not, I can't do that. It's not indicative of who I want to be as an ambassador, but more so who I want to be as a person. And then we had an event, the, the gala event, there was an issue with our seats or something. And I was like, I just got really upset about it. And, you know, I didn't make a scene, but definitely like the next day was like, what on earth? Like, you got to just stop. And at that point it was just like, that was it. And I was like, I just, 
I can't do it anymore. It's not worth it. It's not worth losing this opportunity. It's not worth it. just for me. I just had to recognize that there's, it's all gas, no brakes. Like I just, when I start, there is no stopping no matter how much I try. And, and I have a history of it in my family. And it was just a matter of like, I love this industry. I still want to be a part of it, but I can't, I can't do that if I allow myself to continue down that road. So, so I made that decision and, and it's been great. And, and so we have a division at, at Brown Foreman called Pause. Uh, and it's just two people as of right now. Hopefully soon it will be three and I'll have another job, but you'll put that in the universe and hopefully yeah, it comes put back. In the universe. But the, it's a division that focuses on alcohol responsibility. It's not necessarily about not drinking, but it is about establishing responsible behaviors, making sure that there's a level of inclusion in our events that don't, so that people that don't drink or choose to maybe not drink as much still have obviously an opportunity to, to be a part of the, the experience. And so I've developed a really good relationship with them. I've done some panels for them, speaking with, with different people, working on national programming for Eroduras, alcohol-free and low ABV programming, Woodford's as well. We just did an event last night called Pause and Paint with Keith Anderson, who was the bottle artist for the Woodford Reserve Derby Bottles the last two years. Mm-hmm. So we did that in coordination with Black History Month, and we did non-alcoholic uh, cocktail kits and then obviously said hey if you want to add you know wood for reserve double oak is a great one for the hot <laughs> chocolates in the world right the brand uh, you can <laughs> you know you can but at the end of the day it was just about bringing people together talking about the brand a little bit but also having a great experience you know doing a fun activity and, and that kind of stuff so plenty of opportunities coming along there have been countless coffees i've had with people in the industry that have reached out and said hey you know we appreciate what you're doing and and setting the example we want to talk about, you know, issues we're having or, you know, we're thinking about making that decision or I'm struggling with this. And so that's been a really nice, you know, benefit that I, that I, I didn't think about when I made that decision, you know, to do that, that I would be able to help inspire people or be a resource for people that are struggling. And I've reconnected with people from high school I've been talked to in 20 years. I mean, like, it's been a crazy, crazy journey. And but it's been, it's been great. No, I think it really it's really has And the fact that it's turning into other opportunities that you can then create to help other people is also pretty awesome. So yeah. I, I, I'm sending it back into the universe that you know it's <laughs> go into the company. And next year we're gonna I'm gonna be having this conversation and Michael Toscano's gonna have a whole new role and it's gonna be Yeah, I'm just trying to make a new table. It's just a new table. I love the table <laughs> I'm at, but it's just time for a bigger yeah. table. You know what I mean? It, it is time for a bigger, bigger table. Thank you, Michael. That was <laughs> That was great. So Ian, you now, from going from being the the global Roman, which you still are, the UK Roman ambassador, to now owning your own brand at Quano, right? Am I Mm -hmm. pronouncing that correct? Equiano. What? Equiano. Yeah, they go. (laughs) Equiano. Island. Sometimes these things are... All right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Equiano, sorry. Tell us how it came to be, the story behind it, and I know there's a big charity component to it, so... Well, I mean, I've been as a, as a as a rum ambassador, you get approached by many, many different rum companies to either help create their brands or consult on their brands and and possibly get to partnerships. I've never really found the right brand to work with or the right time. And was approached a couple of years ago, about two years ago, by some guys, and and we were talking about if you were to get involved in a brand, what would you do? And I said, well, these are some of my ideas. And we all just we all just vibe. We all just clicked, and it just it just it just felt right. It felt right at that particular time, and it's not been time to actually uh, create a rum brand. And uh, a lot of the ideas were things that I had planned over the course of a few years, but now they came to fruition. Like 
working with one of my favorite rum makers in Barbados, being able to create the world's first African and Caribbean rum because of my heritage being African and Caribbean here in the UK, to work with developing developing uh, rum area like Mauritius off the east coast of the mainland of Africa, to, to work with some of the companies there who I was fortunate enough to be asked to help develop their industry by the government there. Wow. Uh, again, wow. uh, something you just never really fathomed when you decided to call yourself the global rum ambassador, that governments are calling you to actually help develop their rum industry within their countries. And I've done that with a few countries. So it was a lot of things put together. But once we decided where the liquid was going to come from and how it came about, and the fact that any brand that we created had to have some sort of a charitable motive, uh, because I've taken from this industry in many, many ways. I've taken from lots of different industries. And, and I want to, and I put myself in a situation where now I can actually make a difference. I can travel down to Antarctica like I did a few years ago, uh, take some rum down there and raise money for charity just because people want to see me freeze. <laughs> so I'm doing it again next year. So if I was going to create, if I'm creating the brand, I want to be able to be able to do that. And, and the rest of the, the rest of the team felt the same way. And that's why with this brand, with how it was made and where it was made, and the fact that we named it after Alauda Equiano. Alauda Equiano was a, um, an African that was enslaved uh, during the 17th, sorry, the 18th century. 11 brought to Barbados, sold in bar from Barbados into the US and into the UK. And that's where our rum makes that same journey. It comes from Africa, it goes to Barbados, it then is aged and married there, then sent to the US and sent to the UK and bottle in Barbados. And yeah, we created this little brand in 2019. We looked to hope, hopefully a lot of bartenders drinking it and into bars and then the pandemic happened and we're like, oh my goodness, what a crazy time to launch a brand. Uh, but then people started giving us love online. As we know, as you guys have probably seen, a lot of people buying spirits at home, trying more premium spirits at home, talking about them online because they see and they have more time to see certain things online. And people start talking about the brand and we, we actually achieve three times more than what we were hoping to do before the pandemic was coming but such in our first year which is last year so it's it's growing it's it's a lot of people showing it a lot of love as it's the world's first african and caribbean rum as a blend of rums from cognac cask in asian africa sent to barbados with a, a once used american oak um, or bourbon barrels because bourbon you guys and you guys in the in the bourbon industry have some of the best barrels out there so you're only allowed to use them once which is good because then we can use them in the caribbean for our rum so yeah, we, get those, we get those barrels from kentucky and all over america mainly from kentucky and then we age our rums there and blend those and and yeah and create magnificent rum so this is just another what i see as a premium rum to help promote the premium rum category because it's not about me it's not about this brand it's about premium rum as a whole and the more people drinking premium rums, the more people talking about premium rums and sipping them and savoring them and using them in great cocktails, the same way as they'll do a bourbon or a Tennessee sipping whiskey or an Irish whiskey or a Scotch or a Japanese whiskey, all these different types of whiskeys. We should be doing that with Jamaica rum, Barbados rum. You guys can't drink Cuban rum, but there's some good Cuban rums out there. Cuban rum, Puerto Rican rum, Belizean rum. Yeah, exactly, Belize. So it's all about, all about showing love with premium and well-made spirits. So... So that's the reason why I, uh, I created that brand. And as a charitable aspect, as a giving back, as a partnership, we routine up with antislavery.org and we donate, well, we're giving 5% of our profits to antislavery.org, but until we start making profits, $2 and two pounds from every bottle sold from our website goes straight to the charity. So we cut our first check to them in January and they were like, wow, 
that's not bad for a startup. I'm like, wait, it's going to get even bigger. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're working with a lot of a lot of modern day slavery that's happened now with women being abused in India and in, in parts of Africa and kids being abused and taken advantage of in certain parts of the world. So like I said, we're just trying to make a difference as such. So uh, that was the reason why I got involved in, actually for the first time, actually got involved in creating a brand as opposed to just bigging up other brands from some of these big companies out there as an independent ambassador. No, I think, which I think is amazing. And we talked about this yesterday, just doing a little, I mean, you're not going to solve the world problem, but everything yeah. has a compounding effect. And the more people do something, just a small step, it really yeah. will help. You know, other people yeah. will see what you're doing and they're going to want to do it and 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 so on. So yeah, yeah, uh, the <laughs> yeah. Little time same thing with Michael, what you're doing is the same thing. You know, it's that it's that compounding effect. Well, I just wanted you to say hello to you. Wait, hold on, because she shouted out to you while we were in here, Gabriella. Oh, Gabriella! Hey, hey, Gabriella! Hey. <laughs> Hi, Gabriella! And then, uh, it was amazing. I, she's gonna give me grief because I've been—I didn't go to a bar last year at all. But uh, <laughs> always give me grief. Well, I think everybody has an excuse this year. And and hey, Nick, good to see you. Nick was on last week, and actually, we're having a part two. He's gonna be on again. Oh, uh, nice. To finish his, yeah, the, se- the second half. So I know we're kind of coming on the hour, but I did want to touch, I mean, if you guys have a few more minutes, I think as quickly, because one of the things that I really appreciate about the both of you is that you're both really good presenters. Like the first time I saw Mar- Michael and I didn't know each other and I saw him <laughs> present and he was incredible. And, and Ian, you're such a great storyteller, right? So I guess it's like, A, you know, obviously it's a really important part of being a brand ambassador is to be a good presenter. And not everybody's natural at it. It's something you do have to learn. But Ian, I know you actually learned from a coach, I think, or something. Yeah, actually my best friend on Mentor. He was the first person, he was the first person I ever knew had a website. He was the first person I knew had an email account. He was the first person that I, that, spoke about presenting and life coaching and, and that type of stuff. And also, uh, I, funny, I actually met him on a basketball court because I used to play professional basketball here in the UK. But I met him on a basketball okay, court. I'm going to stop you right there because Ian also is a professional basketball player. And <laughs> but it's the thing to do when you're bartending. I was bartending at the same time, all of that. But, How know. old were you? How old are you? You're like 110? <laughs> <laughs> rum, it's preservative, preservative. Yeah. Um, we actually, we met because I tried to fight him um, on a court. He was very clumsy. He's like um, six foot five, six foot six. What's that? Like 196 and I'm like 186. But he's like about 20 stones. I mean, he could have been easily a, a linebacker in American football. And he was also a professional boxer in the army. And I was like a buck oh five and trying to fight him because I had a hot temper when I was younger. And he saw that spirit and was like, I can coach this guy and channel him in the right direction. But then he took me on his wing and I started learning so much stuff from him. But one of the things I learned from him was, uh, the first, one of the first things I learned from him was NLP. It was learning how to use language, how to use certain types of techniques to hypnotize your audience with language, hypnotize your audience with movement, work in a stage. And when you tell a story, positioning yourself in certain places where you can actually tap into an audience without them even knowing that they're being tapped into. And I use a lot of that when I do presentations. And some people don't realize that. I also love comedy. So I add a lot of comedy to my presentations. And I, I call it edutainment because it's easy <laughs> to educate someone when you entertain them as well. And I add all of those techniques into each of those when I do a presentation. So whether it's in front of five people, whether it's in front of 5,000 people, I use very, very similar techniques. So very, very lucky in that respect. 
that I that that was taught to me from a young age, and also during school and and after when I left when I left school, I majored in in theatre, so I should have been an actor. I majored in chemistry, I should have been a chemist. <laughs> and then, then became a mix of Brandon masters were actually actors at one point, uh, were actors, and I think that's a- I got accepted to the number one drama school in London. It's because I started bartending. I didn't go. <laughs> I had so much fun working with the bars. I'm going to get this up. I'm making money. I'm having fun. Forget school. Didn't do university or, uh, yeah, did my A-levels and that was it. That, that's fine. So telling stories, being in education, I think education is 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 very, very important. Being funny and being able to connect with people yeah. uh, with passion. Engaging. Right? Yeah, engaging. As I said, it's people, a lot of times we can come up with all the technical stuff, as, as Mike said, it's like, people might ask about the pH, pH levels of, 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 of the, the, the fermentation and that, like, like, let me look it up and get back to you. And maybe one or two people might ask that as such. But if you make them feel good about that presentation and what you've said, they'll be like drinking your whiskey, like, well, you know what? Yeah, Mike's a cool guy. He made me feel good. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I can drink that. I'm supporting him. People don't remember what they say, what you say, but they remember how you make them feel. That's that, so that is, that, is, that is, I think that's such a great lesson. I'm going to remember that one. And Michael, I know you're a very good presenter. Is it from your enterprise days or? <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like maybe I've just been conditioned my whole life for this job. I mean, really, if I look back at like, you know, as a kid growing up, it was like show choir and theater. And then I worked retail customer service jobs my whole life. So I've always been facing, you know, customer facing. I've always been, you know, I went to school and kind of stumbled into a degree in communication. So like, it's just kind of all of those things, I think just led to me being comfortable in front of people and being able to talk. We, I mean, we have had certified training. I got to shout out Jordan Zimmerman. She's our director of education, Brown Foreman. And she put us all through a company called Combustion during this whole pandemic. And they did a storytelling training where it kind of helped people helped us get into the position of like learning how to cut through a lot of the fat and straight to the details and like having an impactful time because it's such a limited amount in the virtual platform as well as it's so much harder to maintain connection with people in a virtual setting versus in real life and so there there we i have gone through training like that but i think i would tell you 99 out of 100 times i rely on my ability to connect in an authentic way to the people that I'm talking about and letting the passion that I have for what I'm discussing kind of shine through and capture that, capture them. I think that's why I was successful in sales. I mean, I, I definitely went through a lot of training with enterprise. I mean, that, that fleet program that I was a part of, I was calling on CFOs and CEOs of companies and trying to set meetings to talk to them directly and sell them into a program that we were offering. So there was definitely a lot of learning how to read a room and communicate with decision makers and, and that kind of stuff. But, you know. No, but that's an essential like, skill too, because every audience is different, right? So you have like the sure. nerd audience, you have the, the the distributor, you have the the trait, like you have the consumer, right? So you always right, have, right. To, it's a skill to be able to learn how to change your story. Yeah. Based on the audience you have in front of you and reading that right. room is, is, right. is really right. key. Because some people might want to know about the pH level of the fermentation tank. 98% of people won't, but like they're, <laughs> I've been in that audience and I'm like, oh no, no, come on. Yeah. How many plates inside that column still there? And what is the pH level of the fermentation and the wine and the beer that they do? Where are they getting their staves from? And what's the shoe size of the master? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you get all of that. You're going to get that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hi, Ago. Ciao. Uh, I, go, I, go, I go just big up. I go one of the best 
host bartenders Absolutely. in the way that I've ever known in this 25 year, 25 plus years of being in the industry. I go Peroni, legend. Legend. I, I'm missing my annual trip to the Connaught. <laughs> like I used to twice a year and I'm so missing it in the hospitality. It is an incredible. So I go. Thank you. Is better. <laughs> for, yeah, exactly. For, for, for tuning in. All right. So last question, because we're, I know we're going a little bit over time, but this is so good. And I think this is kind of an important thing. Because part two of us. You have to bring us back. Do part two. <laughs> we're going to have to do part two, but I'm going I'm to finish with this. A lot of us suffer from uh, imposter syndrome, right? Sometimes, right? It just, it happens sometimes. And Ian, you and I talked about this briefly. What, what do you do to overcome it? What are some things that help you? Because I, I think all of us have it every, every once in a while, just kind of hits you and you're like, oh crap. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, some of one of the ways. I mean, uh, I, when I first started off, I, I had that. Say, uh, when you call yourself the global ambassador for rum, you do say to yourself, "Should I be here? Should I be in front of these people? Am I an imposter in this situation?" And uh, you overcome. I, well, I, I I overcome the overcame a lot of that because I was confident in what I was delivering. I was confident in what I had to say, and I was like, you know what? I deserve to be here. And I don't know everything. And it's nothing wrong with not knowing everything. But what I'm going to do is be confident in front of the people, deliver what I need to do, say what I need to say. And if I don't, if something does come across, that does come in front of me where that puts you in that mindset where you feel you're an imposter, you say, you know what, I'll get back to you. I'll learn that and then come back and tell you what you just asked. Never ever feel inferior. Never ever feel that you're not, you're, you're not worthy to be there. And that's always been drilled into me. And that's how and that's how I overcame the whole imposter syndrome. I don't feel I'm an imposter, even though I may be the only person of color, for example, in a room at a presentation, even though I may be the only Jamaican inside a room in a presentation, maybe the only person with a hat in a presentation. <laughs> Listen, I'm here on my merits. So again, it's that confidence. It's a confidence and understanding that, listen, Anyone can be the imposter, whether they're sitting in the audience or being on stage. We're all in this together. We're all the same. One of the things I said to the first bartenders is, in fact, Naren would have been one of those bartenders and Jacob Briars would have been one of those bartenders, I said, in New Zealand. I, I, I was in front of like 30 guys and I laughed. The first thing I said is, I have no idea why these guys are paying me money to come and stand in front of you guys. Because... <laughs> I'm not coming here to try and teach you how to make cocktails because you guys obviously know it's the cocktails. Yeah, I drink a lot of rum, probably like you guys do uh, at the end of the day. But there is no difference between you and me, except for the fact these guys are paying me to come all the way from England <laughs> to New Zealand to come and talk about Jamaican rum. Yeah, man. I think that's a good lesson. It's like being humble and not trying to just be, you're being, you believe in yourself, but you're also humble you're not trying to pretend yeah. you're better than anybody else it's just yeah like, yeah and it, and, and, it was, and, and, it, and i got a i got a not rude awakening but what helped me in that situation there was someone i can't remember it was i was in actually in australia the year after and they said a particular ambassador for a famous gin that is owned by a famous puerto rican rum company uh was in australia and the first thing this person came up and said in front of 20 bartenders was held a Boston tin in front of them and said, oh, do you guys know what this is? Wow. Bartenders just got up and walked out. Well, we're on the other side of the world, but you try to ask us, do we know what a flipping tin is? 
<laughs> and got all it's like, wow. Michael, I know you and I didn't talk about it, but I don't know if you have anything to add. <laughs> I mean, you know, keep your circle small, right? Surround yourself with people that have your best interests at heart and care about you and support you. And let those people be your hype people. Because I struggle with this all the time. All the time. Because I don't have 20 years in this industry. I don't have this pedigree, right, outside of lucking, you know. And I say lucking, and I don't even mean that. I filled out a four-hour application to become a barback. You know, I literally, and nobody else was doing that. You know what I mean? Like, I sat down on a computer and did this whole personality assessment for this for this position that then springboarded me to where I am today. And I got here because I worked my ass off because I did write by the people that were around me. And, you know, like, it doesn't matter that I don't have 20 years. It doesn't matter that I didn't spend five years in a dive bar, you know, right. pouring shots till four right. in the morning. It, that does not matter. And, right. you know, my wife will be the first person to step up and say, you have worked your ass off your whole life. Like, you are exactly where you're supposed to be. You know, take pride in that. I think we've hit on it a couple of times. But be honest when you don't know the answer to things. Like, own that. Right. Always be open to learning more. Always be open to growing and understanding you don't have all the answers. But at the end of the day, like, if you're not doing it, who else is doing it? You yeah. know what I mean? If I'm not the brand ambassador of Woodford, who is, right? And, like, why Why did, Why did? are they better than I am for that position? You know, I think yeah. that's a hard thing that we as, as people have to learn. Me, personally, growing up in, a, in an Italian Catholic family, there was a lot of guilt and a lot of, <laughs> a lot of doubt and presence. And I grew up in that, you know? And so, like, you shake that off as an adult, you know, and you, and it, even through my recovery, truthfully learning to be okay with who I am as a person, but I work my ass off yeah. for where I am and, and, and I will continue to do that. And I'll continue to look to lift people up around me. And I think if you do it like that, I mean, no, I think people, we all know that we, we all know the people that, that walked in and asked what who shaker was. Now I don't know who that person is, but like, we all know people <laughs> like that. Right. in this world right that you go yeah. how in the hell did they become that thing and right. we all know that inevitably within six months those people are not in those positions anymore yeah. most cases they get you know karma will, life will catch them yeah. we can't spend our time worrying about it i can't waste any of my energy it's too precious on yeah. what what i think about you know what i mean I, I focus on the people that i care about and care about me and i work my ass off and everything will work out you know you just gotta gotta learn to think like that it's no, I think that's great words of advice. I actually wish I, you know, back in the day, had heard somebody tell me that when I was, I had imposter syndrome most of my career. And, I, and only now I think I feel, <laughs> actually feel like I, I, I feel good about who I am. And no matter how much my husband tells me how, you know, he's like, you're amazing. I was like, I, you never sometimes believe it until you kind of figure it out for yourself. So I think those are both of you guys, great words of advice. This has been amazing. So I just want to say thank you so much. And we definitely will have to have a round two. No, no, thanks for having us. Because this, this yeah, was thank you great. So um, and this is uh, for any of you who might have missed anything, came in late. They are recorded. So tomorrow they'll be up on uh, the YouTube channel called Celebrating the Brand Ambassador or on my website. So I record all these because they're just awesome. And I think they're great life lessons for everybody. So gentlemen, thank you guys so much. And for all of you yeah. who tuned in, thank you so thank much. You. For comments and for being here with us and we'll see you next week and be cool guys right. take care everybody be safe great be well thank you for tuning in again this is your host elaine duff i hope you enjoyed this week's episode of celebrating the brand ambassador 
If you did, please do me a solid. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, leave an excellent review, and share on your social media. Also, follow me at Duff on the Rocks to tune in to the live version of these shows every other week on Facebook and say hi or get a question answered by one of our guests. Lastly, if you want to learn more about my online Brand Ambassador Academy or to sign up for one-on-one coaching, head to my website, DuffOnTheRocks.com or BeverageBA.com. Until next time, this girl is out and an ice cold martini is calling my name. Cheers, everyone. Thank you.